All right, Doc. <laughs> I uh, I met you on TikTok. I had a video about some things, and you started commenting on my TikTok, and uh, you had some very interesting things to say as well. Uh, so tell me a little bit about how that how our meeting kind of even occurred, and why that was such kind of a uh, hot button topic for you. Well, so you had had a uh, made a comment about some studies in Africa looking at a certain dewormer and the fact that it was uh, used on a regular basis for treating parasitism and that you had seen some studies indicating that there was an association with much lower mortality from a certain virus. And um, your question was, you know, why is this information available and yet it's not being considered and you weren't suggesting that you had a theory or an, an you know an explanation but you asked a question about whether or not the suppression of certain uh, information was possibly related to an emergency use authorization and the fact is um, that's a very healthy question to ask that's a very intelligent question to ask and I have an opinion that there's been suppression of certain information and restrictions on physicians and censorship of physicians related to public statements concerning certain medications because it would interfere with um, a money-making operation. And the, the fact that you came to these conclusions, is it wasn't just like, a light bulb moment for you. This was, um, from what I understand, a long progression. You know, you've dedicated your life to medicine. Um, you are an ER doctor. You've you've worked, you know, how many years in the in that field? Twenty five. Twenty five years as an ER doctor. Yeah, and I started as a tech and a secretary. So I pretty much by the age of nineteen, um, as an EMT and a ski patroller, then got a job as a secretary and a technician in an ER. It's a small trauma center. Got to observe the residents being trained and listened over their shoulder. And mm -hmm. so by the time I got to medical school, I could already read x-rays, understand lab tests. And I'd seen, you know, I hadn't been the doctor in that case, but I had been involved with thousands of, you know, people's care. Yep. And I loved it. I thought it was great. And all the way through med school, it was like, hey, show me a better lifestyle where you can like walk in with a backpack, set it under the counter do some cool stuff at the end of the shift. Some other dude, just like you walks in, he takes over, you go home. Like show me a better lifestyle than that. Yeah, yeah. You get the best of both worlds. Um, and it is a safety net. So, you know, my, my attitude was, you know, we take all comers and we don't discriminate and we're not, we're not concerned about, you know, how you got here. We just look at, what happened to you? What's your status and how are we going to get you going the right direction? Um, so it's heavy on diagnostics, heavy on clinical skills. Yeah. It's kind of light on the diagnostic tool side because we pretty much have x-rays, CAT scans, and lab tests. Yeah. We deal with the, a, lot uh, of, a lot of uncertainty. The patient assessment has kind of uh, shifted a little bit. I've seen with a lot of residents where um, it's heavy, like almost too far onto the patient diagnostics of testing for labs and you CT everybody 
um, instead of just actually like, what's your patient assessment like? Well, that's, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. And of course, that goes back to what I would call perverse incentives in the healthcare system. Yep. Um, I've been a, yeah, well, and yeah, some back, some covering of backsides. You know, I was, my letters of recommendation came from the founders of the specialty. I trained in the places where the guys that had come up with the idea of specializing in this worked. Okay, so explain that because that, that is a shift that no, not really a lot of people know about. So explain that, how, how this became a specialty. All right, so there was a doctor in Philadelphia named David Wagner. He's retired now. He was a pediatric surgeon, and back in the 60s, he made extra money by taking call at night in the hospital. And one of the administrators, hospital president at that time, this was the Medical College of Pennsylvania, had said, hey, we need somebody to kind of go to that room downstairs at night when, you know, because people are coming after hours with problems and we need a doctor to see them down there. And it literally was a room in the back, the back of the hospital. And there was a door and people would just knock on the door of this old hospital and somebody would answer it. And they'd go, you know, I need to see a doctor. Well, over time that evolved and he had residents that he was training and some of them said, hey, I'd like to just do this. And so that room downstairs eventually evolved into an emergency department. And, you know, it's different than a specialty that involves an organ system or a, um, a particular um, diagnostic category, like radiology is about the diagnostic tools, cardiology is about the heart, nephrology is about the, the kidneys, mm -hmm. and ER is about the first five minutes. Yeah. And how to manage, you know, a, a vast array of acute illnesses at one time and stabilize them. Right. And so that, that attracted a different kind of person than, say, general surgery or orthopedics or cardiology. Um, and those early practitioners, you know, it was family doctors all over the country. It was internists. It was surgeons who were getting called in the middle of the night. It was pretty much like the hundred monkeys thing. Like, hey, everybody discovered this thing at the same time. There was a critical mass and everyone said, we got to get organized. So they met in Michigan. There was University of Cincinnati people, Michigan people, Philly people, California people. And they just said, all right, what does it take to organize a specialty? What's the body of, what's the unique body of knowledge? And then how do we train it? And they applied to the American Board of Med Medical Specialties and created a specialty. And that was, you know, 40 years ago. Yeah. So those people were still training residents when I was a medical student. So, you know, like there's a textbook called, you know, Roberts and Hedges. It's Jim Roberts. I rotated under Jim Roberts. Mm -hmm. I rotated under David Wagner. I rotated under Rita Sedelka. I rotated under, um, I mean, you name it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, people will recognize these names if they're at all familiar with the history of mm. emergency medicine. Um, and it was, you know, it was pretty cool because these guys were cowboys. I mean, they were doing stuff, knife and gun club and pretty rough areas and they were making it up as they went. 
mm-hmm. figuring out how to modify traditional procedures. And, you know, the whole specialty took a, took a, a turn and we would borrow from any other specialty and then try to f- make it work better for our situation. So, you know, anesthesia has got a difficult airway protocol and that usually meant preoperative assessment, preoperative optimization, empty stomach, and then pre-oxygenation, you know, multiple steps before an airway is secured. And for emergency medicine, difficult airway is a strong elbow and some sucks and accommodate. <laughs> and it's like, you're gonna get puked on, you're gonna yeah. get bloody, there are gonna be distortions. You gotta have a backup to the backup. Yeah. And you got you're gonna you're gonna employ all those things, you know, on any given shift. So you've really shifted. So the mindset was, you know, you're giving your life to medicine. You know, you're rotating under the founders of the emergency medical field, essentially, um, making this that specialty. And then you dedicate 25 years of your life to it. But there's there had to be some point for you where you're like, this is not what I signed up for. Something shifted, like the autonomy yeah. that I thought I once had uh, is different. So kind of walk me through that transition. Well, this probably won't be what you expect, but the fact is I was... Uh... It was in August in 2006. I woke up with a fever, a stiff neck, and a headache, and um, knew immediately that I had meningitis. Yeah. So I ended up going down to the place where I had trained, picked out the guy who was going to do my LP because I knew he was going to do a better job than <laughs> the other guy. <laughs> and uh, I've been in that situation, so I feel you. <laughs> yeah, and I spent you know, a couple of days in and out, they, they, the cultures weren't clear. There was either contaminant or whatever, but the initial cultures were growing something. And so it was like bacterial. They thought maybe it was, but I wasn't progressing like a bacterial would progress. But I spent a couple of days on IV pain meds and then I got a prescription for home pain meds and that evolved into, um, things that I never thought I'd be capable of doing Mm. and a situation in my life that was truly terrifying. Um, So I got to experience addiction and very deep, um, very deep disturbances in my life from substances. And, you know, I, I own the circumstance. It's not like somebody forced me to be that guy, but I went from being a guy who was looked upon as one of the, you know, I was a chief resident. I was AOA from medical school. I had always been at the top end of the the range and was recruited very heavily into my career. Suddenly I'm like the most horrible version of a human on the planet, according mm-hmm. to the culture I came from. So, you know, I'm now a drug addict and I'm going through the medical board process. And I went from being the golden boy to persona non grata overnight. And Jeez. it was like, you, you find out who your friends are. And oddly enough, there's the relationships in emergency medicine are fairly shallow. Hmm. It's based on work. It's based on, you know, some shared experiences, but <laughs> you're not actually doing anything else outside of work because when hmm. you're at work, they're off. When they're at work, you're off. Hmm. You're crossing paths that shift. So it's not really like a partner on the ambulance or. A f- no, you don't, there's no buddies to eat. EO docs are very much lone wolves. In my experience, um, you have to work very hard to have an outside life. And at that point, I was so consumed with, you know, career and I had young children that I didn't really have a lot of friendships outside of 
90 hours a week in the ER, life flight. And I was involved in the tactical medicine side at that point too. So I was doing extra days. Yeah. It's not just a job. It's vastly a lifestyle. Yeah. It's a huge lifestyle and it's an adrenaline soaked lifestyle, which has implications for mental, you know, decision-making mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. So I, I tell people I was like the Betty Crocker cake mix, you know, I was just a, just, just a, a hand grenade waiting to go off in somebody's mm. face. Yeah. And all you had to do was add a substance, which seemed to facilitate the insanity. And then it was like, all right, I'll go a little further. I'll take mm-hmm. this one step beyond. So that process sowed the seeds of what I would, most people would call an awakening. And the awakening isn't just a mumbo jumbo spiritual guru stuff. Like if, if anybody wants to take uh, a finger pointing approach and say, okay, whose fault is this? It's like, well, they did it to me. They made me go to 12 step groups. They made me do a rehab program. And I spent a lot of time looking inside. Like, how did I get here? What choices did I make? How did I miss these things? Mm. What were the blind, what were the blind spots? And over and over, you know, you keep finding things that you just didn't consider before. So by the time I finished that process, I had a wholly different perspective on who I was, what my career was about, and what we were actually doing in the hospital. Um, I had an experience as a patient, so I did have some fairly uh, informative interactions with other doctors from the perspective of a patient. And it was, you know, I was experiencing medication side effects from some of the stuff they put me on in the rehab center to the point where it was anybody with a, with any sense would say that guy's got a movement disorder or something's wrong with him because he's pill rolling he's shuffling mm-hmm. his feet he's got a wide base gait he can't his muscles are very stiff and i mean my blood pressure is normally very normal and my heart rate's usually very low because i'm very athletic mm. so i might you know resting pulse in the high 30s mm. my resting pulse there on those medications was in the 110s and my blood pressure Jeez. was 215 over 110 sustained sustained day after day and i said this is a serotonin syndrome wow and they they were like you're not a doctor here you're a drug addict and you're manipulative and i was like holy crap sheesh what kind of attitude is that and i didn't understand how that it could even be possible gave you a very different perspective being the patient yeah and it's like how dare you talk down to me like this hmm. when i'm showing you objective criteria for at least a medical problem if not an urgent medical problem. And I was told that I was being manipulative. Like, how do you manipulate objective data, right? So it got totally um, under my, like it was a burr under my saddle. I'm like, these people have some other view of this situation and I can't comprehend their view. Hmm. I'm not understanding what they're seeing. And did that kind of plant that seed for how you got to where you are today? Yeah. So it was like, wait a minute, their paradigm is affecting their reality. Mm. And they're making decisions that have an impact on my health. And because of the authority structure in place, 
I was under the supervision of a medical board. This was all basically mandated by the state. They were operating under the authority of the attorney general to put medicines in my body, to take biological fluids from me. Were you apt? To, what's that? Were you apt? Like, were you, uh, uh, were you at the po- point where like, like you didn't have a choice or say? Well, if you wanted to have a license, if you wanted to come back into the practice of medicine, you did what they told you to do. Yeah. And that included, you know, taking the medications prescribed by the doctor, submitting to, you know, blood and urine tests on a regular basis, random and, and otherwise. And you just do it because you don't know any better. You're like, well, I'm, I'm still a doctor. Like, what other options do I have? Mm. You know, am I going to go cut the grass and pay back $250,000 in student loans? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I made the choices I made. I lived the life I lived. I had the experiences I had. And I've had people throw them in my face and say, well, you're a piece of shit or mm. you're a dirtbag. And it's like, you know what? They were, those times were a living hell. And I've lost all of my credibility. I lost all of my uh, reputation. And now that we're in the situation we're in, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And when you say situation, you talk about today's world. Today's world. Because I've seen things in the healthcare system as it's become more, um, we'll say, politically controlled mm-hmm. um, that are completely incompatible with my belief system and my understanding of my role as a physician. Um, and a lot of doctors feel that way, but they can't say anything. Okay, so let's talk about that just real quick. So the medical system and then your belief system. Give me pros and cons and, and uh, diver- uh, compare that for me. All right. Well, I guess probably some historical perspectives useful and the practice of medicine used to be regulated by the professionals themselves. That was one of the, the, the defining characteristics of a profession is that they were self-regulating autonomy. Yeah. They only, they were the only ones who knew what the heck they were doing. So other than some basic outside um, checks and balances, the day-to-day was managed by the professionals themselves. So you have this in accounting, you have this in law, you have this in um, engineering. I mean, you name the profession, you're going to have a lot of autonomy amongst the, the, the practitioners of that specialty or that field. Well, that's no longer the case because um, physicians now answer to hospital administrators, most of whom are either prior clinical people or they're um, businessmen. Non, they're business people or they're non-clinicians who've been educated in, within the system itself. Um, historically, hospitals were set up as places to, for, for where sick people were sent. And so the word hospital comes from the word hospice. It was a place where people went when they were going to die. We turned it into a place to study people with disease. And then that's influenced the decisions of, you know, how we centralize resources, how we put a disease management focus together. And then that has fostered the evolution of a pharmaceutical industry, a biotechnology industry. And no one of those things can be said to be bad. They just are a product of, of the, the incentives and, and opportunities. 
but a lot of those opportunities are kind of outside of the healthcare system and in the political realm. Mm-hmm. And when you start to gain access to political figures that you can control, and you start to change legislation that's you know ad- advantageous to your business. You know things get out of control. So I, I basically say we're at the point of the most extreme absurdity of all of those conditions because now the doctors and nurses are basically treated like skilled labor. They're scheduled for shifts. They're told what they can and can't do by non-clinical people, insurance companies and hospital administrators. And they're also um, regulated by attorneys general. So the autonomy is gone. The security is gone. I mean, as a as an emergency physician, I've basically had to choose between being an employee of a major medical system, which then gives the major medical system complete discretion over my schedule and my practice, or which I chose was to go into a contract relationship with smaller medical facilities, which gave me more control over my schedule, but also there was no loyalty. And I've, I've had situations where uh, an upset family member, and in my opinion, they were out of balance. They were not seeing the situation for what it was. They were angry or vindictive. But that angry person could write a letter to the CEO and have my job under threat within three hours hmm. with no due process, no explanation, and no no safety within my own contract. So, you know, I've been on the outside edge of this specialty now for 10 years. And what I see is a lot of fear because, yeah, you know, you have a lot of debt, you have kids, you want to have the American dream just like everybody else. People think, oh, doctors make a lot of money and some do, but you're operating with a tremendously significant level of debt. And so, you know, I make a couple thousand more than the next guy and I'm also paying out a couple thousand more yeah. than the next guy. You know, yeah. I'm still driving a, a a rusty pickup truck. I'm 48 years old. I've been through a divorce so you can layer that on top of it. And it's like, I'm not rich. There's no rich guy here, guys. <laughs> and I go in, I get my ass kicked in these ER shifts and I've got people with high school uh, degrees on the phone from insurance companies telling me I can and can't do things. Yeah. And it's like, that's very disempowering. And now with this current pandemic and the political situation and the censorship that's happening, um, you know, it's, it's, it's reached a level of, of absurdity that is uh, troubling to say the least. Let's, uh, let's dive in. Um, All right. So you did your last ER shift. They said it was Tuesday. Yeah. And yep. then what led you to that was a situation that occurred at the beginning of this uh, situation that we're in. Uh, you want, would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Well, so again, more perspective. I, I had a couple of years where I've spent time away from the ER doing what they call regenerative medicine or stem cell therapy and um, that kind of stuff. And it was definitely you know, an extension of that awakening process. I wanted to explore other approaches to healing and um, 
coming out of a divorce, I just needed a break from the ER grind. Mm -hmm. So I worked with a group that was um, doing some other approaches to chronic disease. Cause that's one of the things ER has shifted in, in the seventies and eighties, it was the place where all the acute injuries and illnesses were managed. Yep. Now it's the safety net and we see a tremendous switch in the population that's using emergency departments. And it's not only the acute stuff, but there's a huge expansion in the number of people who have complications of chronic disease or acute exacerbations of chronic diseases who there's nowhere else in the healthcare system for them to go. Yeah. And, it, and the last group would be those who are experiencing something unique or unexpected. And because of how rigid the healthcare system has become in terms of scheduling, um, efficiencies, staffing, and um, we'll just say compartmentalization due to insurance and reimbursement. I mean, quite simply, if, I, if I'm an ER doc and I go into a, a clinical office and it's a family practice environment, I do a procedure there and try to bill for it in that environment, that won't pay for it because it didn't happen in an ER. Yeah. So they've literally got reimbursement drilled down to the location, the specialty, your credentialing, and whether or not you are authorized under that insurance company to bill for that thing. Yeah, it seems like most of your paperwork that you do is uh, coding for billing. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely oriented towards reimbursement. Yeah. But the people that we're seeing, they have problems that are not easily solved. Like we're seeing even today with the beginning of this pandemic. Right. And then when you have the additional um, complications of denials from insurance or yeah. uh, incentives that push people in certain directions that may not be best for them, you know, your, your options as a doc are pretty limited. So the level of frustration with a, an average ER shift is probably, you know, 10x what it was, you know, 20 years ago. Oh, I'm sure. Where you felt like you could have a discrete interaction with somebody and achieve some sort of outcome and it was measurable and it was positive. Now it's like, well, you know, we've just rearranged the deck chairs on the Titanic and then passed them along. <laughs> and you're doing like that, that, doing that on a, you know, on a very high volume basis because the volume in the ER continues to go up and up. Mm -hmm. And so as my career evolved, I realized I needed a break. I took a break, came back just before COVID kicked off. And this whole event has been surreal. And the reason I say surreal is because I come in with the training that includes tactical medicine, medevac, you know, I've had some training in disaster response and toxicology. Um, I'm obviously an experienced ER guy with a background in air medical transport, critical care. So, you know, like I know what a blood gas is when I look at it. <laughs> I've managed more than a few ankle sprains in my life. Just two, and right? Just two. But when you're, you know, I flew for six years as part of a critical care transport team in, in one of the, you know, bigger systems in the country, one of the older programs in the country. We're a very sophisticated team. You know, we were basically a flying trauma center and a flying ICU. Yeah. We take the sickest people in our region and get them to the care they needed. So you did things quickly, made assessments and decisions fast, and you took action. And that, that seemed to be, you know, a good preparation for like, hey, we've got this really bad thing coming. 
we should all get ready. And what was interesting is that the medical directors, the ER directors, the doctors that had the background, they were not invited to any of these meetings. It was like suddenly there's tents in the parking lot. When you say like, meetings, what do you mean? Well, whatever planning to deal with, you know, a quote unquote surge. For So the meetings for the hospital system? Yeah. Okay. It was like the politician somewhere decided this and then an administrator took action and they didn't really loop in any of the clinicians. Mm. And this, this happened in multiple locations that I was associated with where the medical director's like, yeah, nobody called me. Mm. I don't know how we're going to staff this. We don't have additional bodies to put out in parking lots. So they just put tents out there and then didn't think anything about actually staffing the thing. Right. Well, they, they didn't really have a plan and uh-huh. they didn't know what they needed because the, the, the nature of the problem hadn't really been that clearly explained. Yeah. And then over time, it was like, well, we're just not seeing the kind of epidemiologic data that we need to see to make good choices. There were problems with testing. There were changes in the way they reported uh, test results. And then it was like... Um, was this like spring of uh, 2020? Yeah, but I would, you know, the, I mean, you saw the whole political fiasco at oh, the yeah. federal level oh, yeah. where it's like, oh, restrict travel, don't restrict travel. And whoever <laughs> decides anything is going to be crucified for whatever they decided. Uh-huh. And it was, a, it was a circus. It was an absolute circus. And you're like, my thing was, you know, we have people that are very good at this kind of thing. We have, you know, emergency management professionals who are trained to assess, you know, not only the nature of the problem, but what resources need to be brought to bear. And across the board, those people were not involved. Wow. And even in the military, amongst my friends who are reserve physicians and, you know, even some active duty guys, and I have relatives that are active duty on, on the command side. And they were like, yeah, it was really weird. Like our medical guys really weren't brought to the table on our response. And that's really strange. Yeah, especially for a, a virus Medical that's supposed problem. to be uh, taking over the whole world. Yeah, so um, there was definitely a mismatch between resources and need at the beginning of this thing. And now it's kind of coming around, it's matured. And I see now sort of a mismatch happening again. Um, and that's more, mostly to say that it's been highly politicized. And then after you've done all this, you started being curious about some things. Yeah. That's when it, that's when shit hit the fan. Well, the shit hit the fan when I opened a Twitter account, (laughs) apparently physicians that have Twitter accounts are uh, treated differently. Um, And I just tweeted something about one of the medications that they were restricting early on. It's like, well, geez, this thing seems to be useful. Why would they restrict it? And then why would they cover up stories of people who've benefited from it? And that was picked up by a large popular um, group of people. Are you allowed to say who? It was QAnon, which you know one side says is the most dangerous conspiracy theory on the planet and the other side says well it's part of the great awakening or whatever i'm indifferent because it's just a tweet guys because you just tweeted about a certain drug yeah and and this group got a hold of it then what happened 
Well, then my Twitter account exploded and I was prescribing this medication to people that were sick. And between the attention that I got for the Twitter account, because once you get a Twitter thing, other people from the hospital see that. And then they go, well, what's he doing? And so obviously they're not going to come right out and say, hey, we're going to, you know, terminate your contract because you're on social media. They just came in after a few shifts in a new place and said, uh, yeah, it's not working out. Go home. Jeez. Like just, just like that. Yeah, I had, I had signed a two-year contract with a group to be on a two-year partner track um, closer to home. It seemed like a great group, very stable, community hospital, nice, nice town, and um, seemingly good people. And things were great the first four shifts and everybody said you know you're a good fit and you fit right in here there were guys that had trained at the same residency as me so we knew each other through the grapevine so to speak and all of a sudden you know four or five shifts in things start getting weird people start seeing my patients after i've seen them uh, charts are disappearing from my uh my sign off pages like i know i saw this guy where does chart go and then you see that it's been attributed to another doctor. Oh, wow. So they come in and they're like, yeah, it's not working out. So I had like four, sh uh, four or five shifts in a row. I showed up for the fifth shift and I was met at the door by a security guard, the chairman and a chief legal counsel guy. And they're just like, here, uh, we're going to pay, you, we're going to buy you out of your contract. And it was like at wow. will. So I said, dude, it's your place. You do what you want. I'm yeah, so... I'm yeah. not going to work for people that don't want me to work for them. Yeah. And, and your story is happening all over the place. Right. But it's also not being told because for some reason it's just being shot down. In fact, on that same video, I don't know if you saw that comment, there was a uh, interventional radiologist uh, who said very similar things. She's a part of a group that as uh, a group of doctors that were doing, we're just curious about certain things and trying to explore different avenues. Cause at the beginning of, the, of this pandemic, there was, no treatment, like people curious about everything. And we, we find out that these certain medications are beneficial in such, to some extent, and they pretty much have the same thing happen to them where they get a nasty letter. Um, so that they have to be anonymous to even talk about it. Yeah. And I'm not that guy. I mean, I'll take my, I'll take my punches. I've been persona non grata. I've had people come out of the woodwork after me before i kind of like it <laughs> kind of like it i'm like oh you want to fight fuck around and find out <laughs> i mean you're a smart dude i mean that's what uh like you're the few emails and conversations we've exchanged back and forth prior to this podcast i knew that you had a very different perspective and that's what made me curious about maybe talking more about all this stuff with you because you weren't just somebody who's drinking the water and and handing down all the uh, talking points from people above you. Like you're asking the questions, which is what I'm trying to do. And even asking these questions has been a huge issue for people. I don't know why. Like, why is it such a bad thing to ask questions nowadays? Well, and I guess, you know, when you start asking the question, why, then you have to look at perspective which leads you to the question of what is your paradigm? What is your overall worldview that you're operating from? Because 
if you operate from a perspective that says that I live in or orderly, just society where institutions and corporations are aligned um, under incentives that are designed to enhance the human condition, then you expect to see things working a certain way. So you're like, well, if we're all pulling for the same thing, we all want good outcomes for each other and we're looking for win-wins, then we shouldn't see somebody taking advantage of somebody else or enslaving somebody else. But, you know, so that's also not the human condition. Like history shows that humanity has never been amazing. Right. When these type of situations occur, it's been amazing in in fits and starts. I'll call it. Yeah. Yeah. But for the most part, when you look at the timeline of humanity, it's always been working towards gaining power. Right. And so power, a focus on power is, is, an interesting thing because you know you have to assume authority right nobody's going to just give it to you you have to also assume it so a lot of people have been conditioned to just give power and authority to somebody right so you got a government you got a teacher you got a school principal police officers you know we hold them in certain regard and they're a they, respectable field. Yeah. And so then we listen to them when they say to do things. And we count on the fact that our teachers are good people and that they're they're going to protect the children and they're going to educate and teach them how to think and how to spell and how to read and how to write. And that's very important. You would not send your kids to school if the teachers were there to hurt your children. Yeah. Right. You would not trust your police if they robbed you every time they pulled you over. Right. And there's a there's obviously experience in this country where some people think that they've been robbed every time they've interacted with a police officer. My own experience with police officers is that, you know, there's good and bad that we have a lot of corruption in a lot of layers of our society and that that corruption has now led to. Um, I use the word absurdity because it's a little less uh, obnoxious than the word insanity. Mm. We live in an insane culture. Mm. It's understandable when you try to pull back and see, you know, what minds people are using to understand their world. Okay. Break that down for me. Okay. So, you know, on any given day, a human has several different, sources of information and choices to make. So one of one source of information is is unconscious to you, right? It's it's your it's your instincts. It's like I'm going to do something because it's just in my DNA or something. There's not a conscious thought. You're going to go to the bathroom, you're going to get up, you're going to go to sleep. Like at some point you're driven to that because it's part of your physiology. Mm-hmm. It's an area of how to help you thrive. Yeah. It's baseline stuff. Yeah. All, you know, all creatures do it. Then there's a level of, you know, conscious awareness and you have um, habits, which are slightly more conscious than instincts, but they're just automatic behaviors. Oftentimes very complex automatic behaviors. Don't require a lot of choice. You just do it. In fact, some habits become compulsory Mm -hmm. where you can't not do them depending on where you're at. And then you've got, you know, 
sort of volitional activities. I, I, I'm thinking and I choose to do this. I, I'm looking at my options. I'm looking at my situation, whatever it is, and I'm going to do this. Okay, so now you're making conscious choices, taking action. Well, there's higher levels, right? You can get into things that you would think are more creative, where it's not just logical. You know, I've got these facts. I have this outcome I desire. Here's the logical step. Well, there's creativity. That's that's now you're using another level of, of awareness to 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 rearrange your world somehow according to a preference or according to an idea or according to a value or a principle, but you're you're changing it up for fun, for expression, for something else. That's a different a level of awareness that you're using. And then beyond that, you have inspiration, where it's like, I don't even know where this idea came from, but man, this is really cool. So are you seeing that with today's situation? I'm seeing that... Um, that there's an effort to anchor people in some of the more basic levels of awareness and suppress those higher levels of awareness. To, Can you break to, that down into like an actual practical example? All right. Um, watch the news and evaluate your emotional state after you watch the news. What do you feel like after you watch the news? I mean... Typically distraught. <laughs> distraught. So there's depression, demoralization, anger, rage. Um, it's designed to anchor you in an emotional state that is generally stressful. Mm -hmm. And we have obvious, it's no longer even a question of whether or not that has a physical outcome, right? Oh, yeah. People that live in states of chronic stress, fear, they have a very different physical expression, right? Their hormone states are different. Mm -hmm. cortisol levels high their insulin resistance is up they age faster and they're even in a certain mindset different brain structures are operating as compared to when you're in a creative state or when you're in an analytical state or when you're logical or when you're involved in uh you know an interpersonal interaction well it's crazy how much we don't know about that though because you know stress especially over the chronic time for, for people like you and me who have spent years in stressful situations in a stressful stress. job right for a long time uh you realize how easy it is to look old right like you, yeah, can, yeah. you can look really old for not being very old because chronic stress right to cortisol but also cortisol affects your telomeres which inhibits telomerase which also makes sure that your cells die faster so it's like we, uh, my question for you is is the news that emotional state, that chronic stressful state that they're trying to get people in. Why right. do you, why do you think that is? Is it just because it sells? No, it actually has an implication for um, what you can actually understand. I mean, when you put somebody in a state of fear, their intelligence drops. Their, their ability to use their brain changes. They can't access higher centers. And I'm not somebody who separates spirituality from the physical because you're in your body for a reason. Your body is part of your spiritual experience and your whole being includes your body. So there's, there's no reason to try to escape your body or, you know, levitate out of your body. Like your body is part of your operating system down here. You're having a physical experience and 
you know, people that want to say, oh, it's just the body. Well, let's talk about some theoretical physics. Let's get into the quantum aspects of reality. And pretty soon you start getting into some very interesting conversations about whether or not reality is some sort of fixed external environment that you're moving through, or if it's actually a mirror of things that are coming through your experience. Hmm. The Matrix comes to mind yeah. as a movie. The Matrix is wrong in the sense that, you know, the Matrix tries to portray the the external reality as something that's piped into your head. And I've had experiences where I see, oh, wait a second, I'm actually interacting with my reality. It's teaching me things. I'm seeing patterns, and those patterns change as I learn. Mm. Um, and now if this really brings the whole question of control into focus because if it's just an external reality and everything just is and it's permanent you know it takes millennia for the landforms to change and trees and plants are stable and genetic drift is you know slow and over decades and centuries well then you know you can't do much with it it just is what it is. Mm. Creativity is mostly just rearranging shit, mm. you know? And it's like we slowly come up with new ideas and we slowly uh, improve our society. And there's a contingent that wants you to believe that's the only way it can be because then they have control over it. Well, so is there is there idea of improving uh, that definition? Is that definition of improvement for them, these people who are, what you say, trying to control everything, are they trying to impress that definition upon the lay public? Well, the lay public accepts it. And why they accept it is kind of beyond the level of this conversation. But the fact is... Was they, that an insult? <laughs> Did you just insult me saying I'm dumb? <laughs> no, it's just... It's, <laughs> There's so many precursor conversations that have to take place in order to set up the logic. Yeah, I feel that. For this thing. That just and, means we got to talk more, that's all. <laughs> yeah, and we're already 40-some minutes into this deal. Yeah, when, when do you have to leave, by the way? Uh, like 20 minutes or so. Okay, all right. Um, but the fact is, you. <laughs> I'll just say this. None of these ideas are new. Yeah. Right? These are, if you look at ancient traditions, whether Buddhism or Hinduism or uh, even mystical aspects of some of the Christian and Muslim religions, they all touch on these things, right? Christ was teaching this stuff. And you can spend five minutes searching the web for spiritual awakening stuff, and you'll have tons of people describing experiences where they suddenly felt this oneness with creation, and they felt like everything was just one permanent now. And they became in, in contact with this sense of like peace and oneness and yeah. joy and love. And they're blown away and it changes their life forever. And now we have, you know, departments of psychology and psychiatry that are actually studying these phenomenon mm -hmm. and measuring brain function with SPECT and, and uh, functional MRI and seeing that there are corresponding changes in the brain that match what we would call a spiritual awakening. Mm. So here's the question. If that's, a, if that's a documented phenomenon, if it is actually a common experience amongst humans, 
then number one, why does it happen? And what is that perspective that occurs in those people after they've had that awakening? Why is that so transformative in their life? And what do they understand that makes them different than the general population? Mm. Because they don't see the world as a fixed thing anymore. They see it as a, as a continuously evolving and almost continuously unfolding experience of their life. And it's a totally different mindset from the humdrum day-to-day, get a job, nine-to-five thing. Is it just for the reward aspect of it, you think, or what? What reward? Spiritual awakening? Yeah, because honestly, like that's when you look at like uh, evolutionary concepts of trying to always strive to be better, basically, uh, the survival of the fittest. Is that a type of survival of the fittest because it does benefit you better and sets you apart from the main group? Well, that's a question, and I can tell you that my own spiritual awakening came out of tremendous hardship and struggle, Mm. that it was not an advantage. And the things that I had to go through came out of mistakes and poor choices and circumstances that I would never have even considered wishing for or asking to be Mm. part of. On anybody. Anybody. I mean, mean, nearly dying multiple times from my own hand – you know, overdoses, whatever, and then going through all the tragic consequences that come from, you know, the effect of a substance and addiction on your career and your family and your personal and, you know, whatever. Like, that's not really a, uh, from a human perspective, like you don't end up with more stuff. <laughs> you don't end up with more security after that, but you care less about security because you, you know that you're going to get through it anyway. And that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That is, so, so your state of mind based on what you experienced has set you apart in a very different way from the general population and has given you a healthy perspective on where we are today. Seemingly. It's, well, it's a different perspective. Healthy depends on your definition of uh, true. whether you want your body to survive. Because there's people that have pushed the envelope on this and ended up with a bullet in their head. Yep. You know, the, 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 the vested interests are to keep people in the same mindset, keep them locked and focused on things that are scary, and then tell them what to do. Okay, so why? Um. Why are we see if we all ran around knowing exactly what and who we are, then those who seek to control would have no control. Hmm. Okay. The paradigm would shift so completely and they would have to, you know, if, if you wanted something to be done to the mass to the masses, you would have to get them to want it to do it. You'd have to get them to agree to it. We're not seeing that now. We're seeing coercion. We're seeing manipulation. We're seeing threats. We're seeing, you know, people are being deprived of basic functioning in society and in their careers if they don't comply with something. Okay, so that yeah, I, I agree with you, but typical the typical counter argument to this idea is that you're just not listening to science. That you just well, uh, want to push a conspiracy theory. Sure, that's fine. And that's that's your <laughs> I like that response. <laughs> that's a perspective, and that's a perspective based on a belief that science is somehow going to give you an answer. But if you're a scientific person, a professional, 
and you understand that process, what science, quote unquote, involves is a hypothesis and then testing the hypothesis and then assessing whether or not your hypothesis was correct. There's no answer in there. It's just more questions because you're going to have to control variables. You're going to have to measure things you can measure. You're going to have to account for things you can't control and can't measure. And so you don't have a perfect system that you can analyze and come up with an answer. You have all these, you have error built into every aspect of it. And yeah. this is even more extreme in medicine because, you know, you've got a population-based medical program where laboratory tests and test results are based on a population norm. Well, if your entire population is mm -hmm. sick yep. and you're basing a normal value on an, a sick population, then it's normal to be sick. Yeah. It's and the comparatives. Had, it's comparative. It's relative. It's not an absolute. Yep. And while it's, there's some things that are just incompatible with life, and I know some people can actually push those limits even, mm. but you know, the normal ranges are pretty wide and you can have a very large range of experience within the normal range. Yeah. And so science is being put forward as this monolithic big black box of truth that can't be questioned. And, you know, the answer is uh, because science. Okay. Um, that's the most unrefined, unsophisticated, unnuanced, answer that you can give to anything yeah and of course social media is perfect let's give you 140 characters to have a nuanced conversation of a complex topic and then if you say something we don't like we're going to take your account down yeah and so it's like we've we've the, the the public discourse has moved in a direction that's incompatible with understanding each other having a conversation about complex topics touching on any kind of nuance whatsoever and without even getting emotional too like it's very and hard it's, to have a conversation with somebody of differing perspectives without one person losing their shit like how what happened to just having a legit conversation of asking the questions looking at some different not even come to conclusions but just discussions and that's well, also comes, my impression is that you know i've dealt with a lot of toxic people um, I can't see you. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I've dealt with a lot of toxic people, whether it's in my personal life or in the emergency department. And one of the things that a toxic person likes to do is they like to control other people. And one of the things they'll control is, you know, how you are able to talk about anything. They will not go in certain places. They will not accept comments or statements from you they will simply ignore them and move on to the statement that they want to make or the direction they want to take things interesting um you know if i know the word sociopath and psychopath is thrown around a lot um and there's a mirror effect where if you call somebody something they call it they call you that thing right back and so mm -hmm. it's totally unproductive but the um you know the the narcissistic psychopath model which is they you know they they want to supply themselves off of the other people around them yeah. and they're not going to take personal responsibility for their behavior they're going to project the responsibility for negative things away from themselves and onto others there's 
you know, changing the narrative, gaslighting, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, it's, it's very troubling when you see that on an interpersonal level and you're dealing with somebody who uses those strategies to manage their own internal states and avoid feeling bad. Yeah. Well, I would consider those to be immature coping mechanisms for somebody and those immature coping mechanisms are now on display within our institutions and amongst, you know, people, grownups that should yeah. know better. And I see that a lot too. Like it's I see that with, better. uh, within our research fields, within our medical fields, but it's very hard to have a, a conversation about it because they either come back with saying, well, you're just not scientific or you don't care about the subpopulation that you're trying to protect, you know, whether it be through the virus or the vaccine or whatever the case may be. So as we kind of wrap up, um, how do we bring home what you were saying earlier about the state of control and power in regards to the virus and the medicine for the virus? Um, I guess if you were going to take the approach of how to deal with a toxic person and expand that to just how to deal with a toxic situation, the, the one thing that, a, that a, a person who's dealing in a toxic relationship needs to come to terms with is not only their own power, but their responsibility to set boundaries. Because when you all of a sudden recognize that you are still in control of yourself and how you respond, that even though that other person is making a lot of noise and creating a lot of drama and there's a lot of potential loss or destruction that's being brought up with an intent to scare you, to threaten you, to get you back into your place so that they can control you. The antidote to that behavior is to set a boundary and say, nope, I'm not doing that. How do you set a boundary though with the current situation? Um, you have to be willing to lose those other things that those people are threatening. Hmm. And the nice thing for me is I've already gone through yeah. that loss process. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, and if you go through an awakening process, you actually lose the fear of death too. That's actually a component of a spiritual awakening. I've had quite a, quite a few podcasts about like just talking about death, how we need to do more of it. Well, we need to do, we need to, we need to process our own death yes. to terms with its inevitability. Realize that it's not, if you believe what I believe, you know, your physical life here is, is, is temporary but your existence beyond that is is permanent and so it's not an ending so and i've seen many people die in my career many many people die and i've seen them die in horrible ways and it's still a moment right it wasn't their whole life some people have very difficult lives some people's lives, you can't comprehend the degree of suffering that they go through. So do you so, think that if, uh, regarding death, do you think that if we all understood death and what comes after death in a better way, that the power of death and control would not be a thing? Yeah. Like for instance, today with the virus and today with even the vaccines, you know, that it's always about, okay, am I going to die or am I going to yeah, have right. a low quality of life? So if, if we took death off the table, would this even be an issue? Right. Well, I certainly think that people would lose enthusiasm for the amount of uh, inconvenience that's been brought up if they if they were not worried for their own death 
and they were simply brought on to say, okay, here's a thing. Uh, it's going to cause you some trouble. Um, you know, do this or I'll take away your job. Uh, if a person was to realize that their life was really not at risk to the degree that they've been told, they would, they would go back to that person and say, um, you're not going to threaten my job over this. You're not going to threaten me with this stuff because number one, it's not as important as you are making it to be. So let's, let's, let's have that conversation and sort that out. Hmm. That's just not taking place yet. Yeah. That I don't think you'll ever, honestly. Well, I think that there's two possibilities. One of them is if you see reality as a projection, then the more work you do on an internal basis, the more your external reality shifts. Hmm. If you see life as, you know, you going through this external three-dimensional reality and it's just a fixed external reality, then that conversation is going to happen one way or another. Interesting. That's going to happen. The fact <laughs> is there's two perspectives. One of them is people are getting to the point where they're like, wait a second, this is dumb. I don't want to do this anymore. And then the people that are insisting you do this and do this are eventually going to be outnumbered and they're, they're going to have to stop because the just like a toxic relationship dynamic, one of the parties is going to say, nope, we're not doing this anymore. You know this is wrong and here are the consequences for your behavior and we're going to hold you accountable for this or we're going to replace you with people that can do the job. Hmm. That's a pretty basic you know, level hmm. that I think that that should be happening. And it is happening in some places with, you know, school boards and elections and things where people are saying, hey, you know, you've been involved in this thing and we don't like how you handled it. So we're going to replace you. We'll vote you out. Let's get you replaced uh, the next cycle. Let's get your, uh, you know, let's let's look at your job performance. And if you haven't met these objective criteria for your job performance, you can be fired. There's a lot of people in the public sphere who have not met the performance expectations of their job. They can be replaced objective criteria. That's it. When we get there, I don't know. Mm. Because that takes enough people feeling like they can stand up to this this tyranny, this bullying, this nonsense and say, yeah, not doing that is stupid. But also being real to the thing that there is a threat. There's something out there that's killing people. That has to be dealt with. Yeah. And it doesn't, you don't fix it with all this chaos in the healthcare system and disempowering clinicians and censorship. And, and that mean, was literally the next question I was going to bring up because I wanted to be clear that like this thing that's happening in the world today is dangerous. Like it, it, it sucks. I had it, uh, I, I had it bad. You know, we've, we all known people who have died from it. Um, but there's a balance in where we go from there. You know, we can agree that it's dangerous, you know, no matter what you want to talk about statistics, it, it, it can be dangerous. Um, then on the other side, it's like, okay, how do we balance how we respond to this right now? And you brought up that good point of, unleash the doctors like let's experiment with these different medicines to see what's actually working and what's not yeah so when you when you look at the testing paradigm that we've been operating under for the last year and a half it's been go you know go get a test and go home okay now if i was a doctor 
working in a clinic and I told all my patients, you got to come and get this test even if you're not sick or you don't have any reason to get the test. And then regardless of the result of the test, I'm going to tell you to go away. Even if you're sick. What would that be lack of resources? Like that's the reason why well, we're sending people home? Why would there be a lack of resources? Like we had tents in the parking lots. Well, if you why, test everybody and you have millions of people at one time, right? That's that'd still be lack of resources. Yeah, that's, but, been the, that's been the whole issue for public health for a long time. Is Yeah, but the fact is these guys were testing people and drive through pharmacies, and regardless of whether they were sick or not sick, the answer was always go home. If I was a physician and I was testing people and they were turning positive for some sort of thing and I was not offering them some sort of support, you think I'd be keeping my job? Mm, fair enough. Like, yeah. here's the point. It's unethical and immoral to test people when you don't understand the quality of the test to then label them as something they may or may not be sick you've mm -hmm. now created a, a new category for that person to live in and the answer to that person is go away mm -hmm. and the people that were coming in with symptoms they were being told there's nothing we can do for you go home and stay away from people when in fact the clinicians weren't given an opportunity. You had non-physicians, non-nursing professionals and people in buildings that were not hospitals or healthcare facilities testing people and then telling them how to treat themselves by going home and isolating. Hmm. That's insanity. Yeah. If I'm sitting there and someone comes to me and they're sick, I'm gonna do my job as a physician. I'm gonna try to figure out what could be the cause and what are the options we have to try and help them? If I was doing the exact same thing, I'd have been crucified. So let's just put this in one little scenario. Say you have 10,000 people show up to your you know, 100 tents that you have, and everybody said 8,000 test positive. What do we do with the 8,000 people to try and treat them for with 100 tents? Because that seems to be the micro scenario that's occurred in every area of the world. Well, so there's a couple different layers. One of them is triage, right? So you yeah. look at who's, who's at risk of dying short-term, medium-term, long-term, and then what's the overall impact on their functioning and their health. If you've got walking wounded, those people are set off and said, okay, your, your needs are not as critical or as immediate. Yeah. See you in 30 you minutes. Can <laughs> this, you can do this and there's some self-care that can be done. So, you know, how do you take care of your nutrition? How do you enhance your immunity, take care of your body? Yeah. Um, there's some pretty basic stuff that all people can be doing in terms of vitamins, yeah. whole foods, adequate rest, managing chronic stress, um, movement, and you know, sleep. And then those things haven't been promoted at all. At all. Yeah, you're right. That's insanity to me. Yeah. You're a public health organization and you haven't taught a single person how to eat how to nutri how to nutrify their body yeah. how to how to how to improve their their functioning and their fitness like it's nuts yeah. the second level is the you know the the minor wound the minorly the minor affected so people that are they're not at risk of dying but there's some impact to them again you know supportive care limited need and then you've got the the higher level folks either the intermediates or the criticals and 
those people you can decide what to do with in terms of resources yeah and the people like to operate in some sort of like perfect world sort of mindset when it comes to emergency care and trauma management and you know triage and they're like oh we're going to be able to do all this stuff and it's going to be awesome because you know we're going to take those critical patients and we're going to set them up with ventilators and do all this stuff (laughs) you know what there are going to be conditions where somebody's too sick to treat because you're going to end up taking your resources away from someone who's actually going to survive what's the level in black on triage right so you know and those are relative to your current state that's not an arb- that's not an objective definition because if i'm on the if i'm uh you know in the himalayas and it's me and another guy and my buddy drops from a cardiac arrest am i going to do cpr on him i mean what's his survival i would at least try the cpr wouldn't i because sure, you, you can still do long? passive insufflation eight minutes brain death yeah so how long are you going to do it I'll do it. I'll cardiac thump them. I've done, I've done that once before. <laughs> yeah. And that's great, but you have to make that call. Yeah. And you have to be realistic about what his chances of survival are. Yeah. Cause there has to be from, a, there has to be that level where you say, okay, I've done all I can. Even for the, the few minutes I've been CPR, he's dead. He's not coming back. I have to go or else I'm going to die too. Right. And so, you know, that's a certain situation. It's an extreme example, but the fact is, you know, we can, we can make up those scenarios all day long, but somebody's going to have to make a difficult choice. And I can tell you, based on my last ER shift, I was having to make difficult choices about who gets what, because there just weren't enough beds. There were too many people in the waiting room. Yeah. The uh, outside hospitals weren't accepting transfers. And a lot of this stuff is coming from staffing shortages and not actual physical plant. That's what I hear. Yeah. So it's like, all right, we're already there, guy. We're already in this place where people are being, um, you know, kind of left in the in the cold. They were already, you know, sowing the seeds for that by sending people out without any options for testing after testing. So you're saying that scenario like never even occurred as far as like, hey, I just wanted to lay my you you wanted to do a full triage assessment on these people. Like if you were setting this up. You want to do a full triage assessment on these people, black, red, white, green, whatever you want to call it, and uh, at least lay eyes on the reds, on the ones who actually need immediate attention. Yeah, they sent a lot of people home who were sick. Yeah. Now, again, you know, we didn't know what we were dealing with, so we didn't know what the outcome for some of these people was going to be. Now we know that the mortality rates are, you know, promising in the in the younger age groups. Yeah. But, you know, it's unconscionable to test people, tell them they got a disease and tell them, get out of my face, go hide. That's your point. Without offering any treatment. And then when there was information available that said, hey, this this worked in past experience, this was something that we could try, it's relatively safe, all of a sudden it's being restricted and shut down. And then you're, you know, in my case, somebody complained to the medical board and I was investigated and I got a letter saying, you know, cease and desist. Don't talk about and that's happening a lot stuff on your uh, social media feed yeah. or we're going to come after you. And I don't know, maybe this video is enough to piss them off, but <laughs> I hope not. I mean, and I want you to be able to do what you got to do, you know? Well, you know, it is what it is. And I think there's a trajectory here that's, you know, going to be fairly toxic, but the uh, options are pretty good if you can get, a clear sense of who you are and what you are because my ability to sit here and you know 
look at stare that stuff in the face and go, all right, well, I'll take that chance. Mm. I'm okay with losing stuff because I know where it comes from. Mm. <laughs> I'll make more. <laughs> right. I'm not afraid of these guys. And half the time it's like, uh, they're paper tigers. There's a lot of yeah. threat. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of drama. That's like, Oh, we're going to do all these things to you. And then you just look at them and say, all right, try it. Yeah. Well, it, seem, it seems like you've also positioned yourself even before coming on this show to not give them a lot of control. Yeah. Well, you, you know, there's hot button topics and there's also, you know, magic words that they believe in. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I know the fact is these are the weakest people in our society. And right now they've been, they've been left alone too long. Interesting. Time for some adult supervision to step up and say, why, yeah. Why do you think they're the weakest? Oh, cause they have to feed off other people. They're not able the to do it themselves. They're parasitic. If they, and the, the, and the sad fact is this, they're just as confused and lost about who and what they are as the people they're trying to control. So whether well, you or not just, they, you just describe the human condition, man, again, <laughs> right. But that's the point. They're not, you know, they are us. Hmm. So we are them. We, we, we can look at that and say, okay, this is basically the state of humanity as it exists. How, if we are them and they are us, we are supposed to, you know, level up that maybe we got to do something hard for once and set a boundary. Oh boy. You speak some, uh, some interesting language there. Yeah. We need to set a boundary and say, uh, these are acceptable and these are not acceptable. And you cross this line and now we're going to have to take some action mm. and action can be anything from, you know, I'm not going to cooperate with that plan. I'll tell you, when I deal with a toxic person in the emergency department and they, they tell me what their vision of the future is, you know, oh, you have to do this for me or I'm going to do this or you have to do this or I'm going to make this happen. And I just look at them and go, yeah, that's not going to happen. We're so not there, doing that. So I'm kind of curious your thoughts on where the state of this toxic relationship is. So, you know, we have an intimate partner violence, right? There's yeah. a whole bunch of stats behind that and... Where There's are we? Where where is the toxic? Let's say you know we're the we're the female in this relationship, and the other uh, person is the male. And where are are they still beating us? Or are they holding the gun to our head? Um, I'm gonna probably I'm gonna twist that one a little bit because okay. obviously there's some there's some booby traps in that Fair scenario. Enough. But if you looked at a toxic relationship just in general where one person is gaslighting and manipulating and smoking the other person. And early in that relationship, the person's not aware of it. You know, they've done the love bombing thing. It's all wonderful and everything's great, but there's these times when things get weird. Okay. That was early on. We've, we've gotten past the like weird stuff and like, Hey, this isn't right. We've been in the phase of complete control where people just, thought this was normal and they wouldn't even try to change it. So they just put up with the shenanigans and they put up with the violence and the nonsense and the chaos. And they even made decisions that were, you know, cooperative with it. Mm. So in my own life, I was basically participating in my own hostage taking. 
in these relationships, whether it was a business partner or a previous marriage or whatever, it was like, I'm cooperating with this and I'm perpetuating this dynamic out of some sort of a codependent thing. So we're, there's a lot of folks that are still in that codependent stage where it's just like, well, I know it's not great, but it's what I've got and I need it to keep working because the, I can't even imagine what I'd have to go through to change it. Mm. Right. Catherine Austin Fitz is a, a former assistant secretary of housing under HUD. She does an experiment in her lectures where she has a button, imaginary button. She says, if you, if you could hit this button and undo all the human trafficking, all the corruption in the governments, all the slavery around the world, all these things that are happening that are despicable, and all you do is hit that button. How many of you do it? And out of 100 people, only one would do it. And the reason most of the others gave is they didn't want to hurt their 401k. They realized that the entire structure of the economy was based on this manipulation of oh, other wow. humans, that it was this parasitizing of another human's power and creativity that was making it possible to have you know, compounding interest on their 401k and that they weren't willing to give that up to change that system. And that's where we're at right now. That's where we're at right now. Okay. Most people, they're, they're just, they're, they're collaborating with their own hostage takers. Hmm. They like, they love it. And they're being given the narrative that satisfies and justifies their behavior. Well, I'm doing it because I could die. If I don't do these things, I could die. And that's terrible. We can't have that. Hmm. And then there's this cognitive dissonance that comes in when people die anyways. Hmm. And then it gets even harder when you confront them with the fact that you're going to die no matter what. Yeah. Like Might as well life go, out. Is, go out on your way. <laughs> human life is 100% fatal. Yeah. <laughs> it's just how fatal absolute. is it? Com- how fatal is it? Completely. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, all right, step into your power takes a, 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 a level of frustration and your own awakening and saying, I'm not doing this anymore. And then being willing to take the, the the consequences that come with it. So as we as we're done here, you've said so much. It's been extremely interesting. I want to know, based on everything you just kind of talked about, what is the final word you want to leave on this podcast? Well, I I don't. You'll probably have to listen to the thing again because I tend to ramble and I probably get <laughs> lost in tangents. And I could attribute that to my you know, brain damage or whatever, but. Okay. So first off, that's actually a real conversation though. Like how many conversations do you have that doesn't go on rabbit trails or tangents? Like that's just real. Like, so that's why, that's why I don't, I don't, I don't edit, man. I'll edit like things you want me to out, but dude, it's, this is real conversation. That's real life. Um, you know, Einstein once said that, you know, the, the, the person, you can't solve a problem with the same mind that's identified the problem. Right. Like that's Mm. his idea is, you know, you're not going to be able to understand a higher perspective if you're using the same mind that you're operating with every day in your uh, your daily knife fight. Mm. Right. Because if you're at odds and you're looking at people as threats and you're seeing, you know, danger around every corner and your adrenaline is spiked. That's a certain kind of mind. And I've lost my mind enough times 
to know that it's actually not very scary because mm -hmm. there's another level, there's another way, a perspective, a shift that's behind it. Like you can, you can, you can transcend your understanding of something and there's actually practices and methods and yeah. opportunities to transcend your current understanding. But that takes a desire and that usually comes out of some sort of loss. It's like, wait a sec, this isn't working for me anymore. I got to do something different. How do I do it? Mm. Well, that's a, that's a great final word, man. I can't wait to have you on again. Um, we'll be uh, keeping in touch and I really appreciate you and everything you said, man. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate your time and you know, keep going. I'll be trying, man. I, I want to always bring a different perspective to the mainstream ideas. And give my love to Texas. <laughs> I will do, man. Bye. See you, brother.